So welcome to the Friday edition of Unexpected Points. Hopefully I'm sounding okay here. I realize my mic wasn't even plugged in until right before this, but we're doing it live. We're doing it live. What was the uh, the Bill O'Reilly? I think that was the, <laughs> the Bill O'Reilly uh, current affairs. We're doing it live. So um, we are doing it live here, folks. On YouTube, if anyone wants to tune in in the future, I'm going to do these 2, 3 p.m.-ish, probably mostly 2 p.m.-ish uh, going forward. I didn't do one last week because, let's face it, it's getting it's getting pretty low <laughs> in terms of the amount of actual, like, tangible news that we can talk about. I have a few things to talk about this week with some player releases for uh, Hopkins, which I talked about a little bit a couple of weeks ago. And then now Dalvin Cook being added to the mix. I looked up some some research, put out some stuff next week about the probability that they can have like a bounce back type of season because both of their numbers had fallen off by my preferred valuation metric. And um, I can sum it up, you know, not great, Bob. That, that that's, that's the sum it up for their chances of having a bounce back. So we'll talk about them. Let's talk about rule changes in the NFL. I want to talk about the kickoff rule a little bit. Try not to be too overconfident in my take, but I think some people are are bowing down to the authority of special teams coaches a little bit too much in assuming that there are problems with this new kickoff rule. But we'll discuss it and keep an open mind to it. And then, of course, we'll do a Q&A. So I'll go ahead and just put it in the comments here. Uh, I'll say drop Q&A here. Get on YouTube, guys. Uh, subscribe to the Unexpected Points YouTube channel. Find this and uh, get on here and, uh, and drop me any, any Q&A that I'll eventually end up getting to. Uh, shouldn't be too long. Uh, hopefully, we can wrap up my other talking points within you know, 15, 20 minutes or so. So let's talk Hopkins and now Davin Cook. So the only thing I'll say about both of these releases is we don't know behind the scenes what the negotiations were like. Presumably both players were offered some sort of, you know, you restructure the contract, you bring down the amount and we'll see if we can work with it. Presumably trade markets were trades were explored where again, if they would bring down that contract amount, Maybe there could have been some sort of trade and just nothing, nothing materialized. Um, remember, you're trading for contracts. You're not trading for players. For Hopkins, we're talking about trading for a player who was going to be scheduled to make $15, $16 million a year. For Dalvin Cook, we're talking about a contract where he signed that extension. And then for this season, his base salary for this season – million. Hey, the guarantees, you know, minor on there. So that's what they end up doing. End up, uh, you know, having to to release them there. It's just, you're not going to find a lot of guys that they're going to be paid that amount. If we go through, if you go to, uh, you know, our friends at OTC and you look up the positional table here for, for running backs, for this season, where does let's see where Cook ranks here. Let's just look at this one year rather than looking at um, 
the full contract amounts. So if we bring up the cash spent amount for these guys this year, Cook was going to be number five in the NFL at 11 million cash. Um, the other guys that are the only guys that are higher cash spent this year is Bijan Robinson. Now that includes his signing bonus. I'm pretty sure there. Uh, Christian McCaffrey at 12 million. Camara at 11 million is tied with Aaron. I'm jo- tied with Aaron Jones, and then also tied with Dalvin Cook. So you could really say he's tied for third as far as what the cash spend was going to be this year for for Cook, and then. His cap number at 14 million, a little bit over 14.1 million, is only behind Derrick Henry and Nick Chubb. So, whatever you think about Dalvin, that's what you're dealing with as far as his relative value. That's what the market is telling us about these running backs, how much you think them they are worth or not. And I looked at Cook's career by my plus minus metric for those who haven't read the pieces and the research that I've put out on what I call NFL plus minus. I called it PFF plus minus before uh, back when RIP to my PFF career um, there. And it's, it's basically looking at on off splits, clustering players, similar players, and then doing some aggressions on it to try to get a points based number for how much a player is worth over, you know, the replacement type of level player. So for cook, this last season, not, not good, um, down to his negative 4.7. And this is kind of versus, you know, your average-ish sort of, sort of backup. So negative 4.7 points, whereas in 2021, it was about six points. In 2020, he peaked out with over 20 points. That was a huge season for him in 2020. In 2019, it was about 10 points. And then his first couple of seasons, he was good, good, not great. So his production not only by aggregate stats, you know, not only by your counting stats that most people are going to judge running backs by, because we really have nothing better. Um, or at least people are not familiar with anything better to look at. They're going to say, Hey, you know, he played 17 games. He put up 1100 yards. He had eight touchdowns. Not bad for him. Well, you know, down to 4.4 yards per carry as part of it. Uh, eight touchdowns, again, not great on it. And then for the receiving is concerned, uh, you know, yards per target receiving, about five yards per target receiving. So when you look at something like that, and I'm combining other metrics in here where I look at broken tackles and things like that that are tracked by PFF that I can put into this metric, just not that impressive of a season for him. Definite fall off for him. And he's hitting, he's hitting what's going to be his age 28 season. Now, again, the big season he had, 2020, a lot of that was not was driven by the 5.0 yards per carry and the 16 touchdowns. And touchdowns are probably a little bit overweighted. Um, also, 6.7 yards per target there versus 5.3 in the most recent season. So more efficient um, catching the ball, too. And so a lot of that, though, is maybe a little bit overweighted because it's looking at his ability to score touchdowns there. And you get a lot of EPA for that final yard, getting into the, getting into the end zone. And that'll filter through to this points-based formula for him. But basically what I would say is if you're looking at cook and you say, well, four straight pro bowls here, he hasn't really fallen off. Now the numbers have, have fallen off some. And when you combine that with the fact that we just know, running backs entering their late twenties have a severe fall off. It's going to be difficult to justify uh, keeping them on that, 
top notch type of contract. And what I did was I looked at other historical numbers and I said, Cook, again, Cook was relatively young entering the NFL, but Cook right now just completed his sixth NFL season. So if we look at other running backs in the past and including everyone here, not just guys who have fallen off to see whether they can come back or not, but looking at anyone in the last 10 years who is entering their seventh season or later for running backs, what's the best NFL plus minus number that we have? Well, there are only four seasons for guys who are in their seventh season or later. There's only four years, four individual seasons out of 123 where they produced at least 10 in plus minus, 10 points in plus minus. Mark Ingram in 2019, I don't know what you want to say about that one. I think that could have been, um, that's the Lamar Jackson effect, right? Let's look, let's look here. That was, I'm assuming that was a Ravens season. Let me just confirm before I start spouting off here. Um, yeah, that was, that was the Lamar Jackson effect. He had a thousand yards and average five yards per carry, but that was one of those years where like everyone on the Ravens had this insane yards per carry. If you took their, uh, yards above expected based upon the model formula where they look at where all the defenders are and the offensive players are, and you try to get their expected yards. There was this weird thing, which I don't think was captured properly in that model where all the Ravens rushing backs are always super high on that. And, you know, including, including Mark Ingram. So we have that Ingram season in there and that was his age 30 season. So he would, that's a couple of years older than, than cook right now. So we have that season who falls into this. We have Dion Lewis in 2017. So I guess that was with the Titans then. So Dion Lewis, 2017 season. Oh no, that's his last season in new England. He was still in new England there. Um, was it 896 yards rushing um, played all 16 games uh, 5.0 yards per carry and yards per target over six. So very efficient season there. So that one for him, although again, it's one of those things where it wasn't really his seventh season in the league because he had missed so many years, but it was his seventh year. Um, Seventh year post, like if you count his rookie year as year one, then it was year number seven because it was 2017 when he came into the league in 2011. But he had a lot, not much mileage to that point. To that point in his career for Lewis, he had, let's see here, 140 carries total. And then in this one season, he had 180 carries and uh, an additional 32 receptions that year. So we have that season from, from Lewis. The Ingram, the Lewis season, LaShawn McCoy, in 2016 that was his eighth season in the year and that's really it nobody else stacks up here Jarek McKinnon last year came close um Mark Ingram another year came somewhat close but really you're just getting pretty meh production you're not getting these big big production numbers and you have a lot of guys who have severely negative production who were formerly good players here. I mean, Le'Veon Bell had one of the worst years as far as plus minus is concerned in 2019 when he eventually, you know, played that season with the Jets. Um, some other guys in here who kind of fell off a bit when they hit that point in their career. Melvin Gordon, a pretty ugly number. Um, 
last season, and that was his eighth season in the NFL at that point in time. So he fell off quite a bit here. David Johnson, another guy who fell off a ton after having a big year before. That was his seventh NFL season two years ago in 2021, where he had a big, big negative number. DeMarco Murray in 2017 with the Titans. That was his seventh year in the NFL, and he fell off a cliff and really never came back for there. So Cook is just right on the precipice of this area where the running backs fall off and they don't come back. Uh, The thing you could critique the Vikings on here and the Cardinals to a degree too, is the timing of the release. I just don't like, we knew there was no way they were going to not release him and save the cap space here unless they could get him to write down that number a lot. Knowing how their, their negotiations have gone in the past, knowing the agent for cook, um, I think the guy's name is Zach Hiller. Very aggressive, very aggressive agent. Uh, I'm sure he's out there. I'm not, I don't, I don't follow him on Twitter anymore, but I'm sure he's out there uh, touting how the team, you know, falls apart whenever they don't have Dalvin cook in the lineup. Cause that's what he would do in the past. Um, they probably just weren't going to be amenable to taking a cut the entire time. So knowing that, you know, Vikings probably should just let him go earlier. Cause I do think this is the toughest time in the cycle to make a trade. It's the toughest time in the cycle for players to be signed somewhere else because you have free agencies come and gone. So everyone thinks at least that they've upgraded it at all these different positions. And they think the positions that were solid last season will continue to be solid here. You have the draft, you have undrafted free agents that you brought in. It's the one most optimistic time when teams are looking at their roster. They're more optimistic right now than they are at any other point in the cycle as to what will actually happen. A lot of these running backs and wide receivers on teams are going to flop. A lot of them are going to get injured. A lot of them are just not going to be ready if they're rookies. But we don't know that that at this point. So laying out big money or big guarantees for Cook or for Hopkins. And remember, for veteran contracts, after week one, the whole thing becomes guaranteed. So signing a big contract, there's no real way if you're going to bring someone in like Cook or Hopkins that you can protect yourself unless you're going to, you know, again, cut them before the season even starts. And that's probably unlikely if you're bringing them in at this point. So you're kind of wedded to paying the entire number for them. They're just not going to be a lot of teams that are looking for it, especially for Cook. Uh, For Hopkins, now we look at his numbers and I wanted to say, okay, let's look at wide receivers who are entering, I believe it's their 10th season. So let's look at Hopkins because Hopkins just completed. Yeah, he just he just completed year number 10 in the NFL. So we're talking about the 11th season here. So if we go 11th season and on, and we don't have the, the biggest database here to, when looking at that for these numbers, we only have 42 seasons that I have to look at in my database here. But only two of those seasons, I have guys who put up more than 10 and only barely more than 10 in plus minus. Who those years? One, Ted Ginn, 2017. And then another one in his 11th season. And then in Antonio Brown's 12th season in 2021, he had a about 11 points added in plus minus. And a pretty good per game number. Really, really strong per game number because he only played seven games. So that was really the only outstanding season that I have here over about the last 10 years. Well, it's a little bit less than 10 years, but it's from more like the last six years because it's looking only at players who are old enough to qualify here for guys who had really, really efficient season. And 
it's really just Antonio Brown over those seven games in 2021. And Ginn was okay over a full 17 games. Some other guys had some sparks. Deshaun Jackson in 2019, he did okay for a few games. But that's about it. Everyone else is very low. T.Y. Hilton was okay last year for the Cowboys in his 11th season. But, you know, guys like Hilton that we're looking at, you know, people think he's completely over the, the hill. Well, not completely, but they're pretty sure, you know, he's over the hill at this point. That's the same. Last year, T.Y. Hilton is the same year that we're talking about for Hopkins. Now, Hopkins was younger coming in. So he has a little bit of an age advantage there, but still that's what we're looking at. And if you look at guys who really just flopped as they got on beyond age, beyond their age, 11 season, I mean, there are a lot golden Tate in here, Brandon Marshall, um, Marvin Jones, Jr. Emmanuel Sanders, Julio Jones, you know, RIP Julio last season was pretty bad. And that was Julio's 12th season. So, about a year more than what we're talking about for Hopkins. A lot of these guys just fall off a cliff. So it's not that Hopkins can't bounce back. It's not an impossibility, but there just aren't a lot of historical precedent for seeing this other than Antonio Brown. And I think what you've also seen, and there's been studies on this, is that the smaller wide receivers tend to age better than bigger wide receivers. Hopkins isn't the biggest wide receiver, but what is he like 215 or something like that? I mean, he's a pretty big. He, he's on the bigger side for wide receivers. Those guys just don't seem to age out as well as the smaller wide receivers do. So that's that's probably going to be one of the problems we're talking about here for um, for for Hopkins and see whether someone will sign him. All right, let's talk quickly about uh, the rule change. I want to talk about this kickoff rule a little bit only in – we don't have a lot to talk about right now. But for those who don't know, the new kickoff rule is if someone – you can fair catch the ball in the field of play and it automatically goes out to the 25-yard line. Um, so it's not – touchback goes out to the 25. Remember, that was an adjustment that they made a number of years ago to try to encourage more uh, – fewer kickoff returns, basically, is allowing the, the touchback to go out to the 25 instead of the 20 to incentivize that a little bit. Now, some teams have tried to – not kick it in the end zone and make teams return it. And I think they just want fewer and fewer of these types of plays in the NFL. The NFL doesn't want them because it has by far and away the highest concussion rate of any play in the NFL. And it's not really the returners we're talking about here. It's really the guys who are either on coverage or blocking that have the high concussion rate. I think there's something like 19 concussions last season on, on kickoffs. And if you think about these kickoffs, they're only actually being returned somewhere around 40% of the time. So around 60% of the time, we're getting balls that are touchbacks anyway. Or I guess in rare occasion, going out of bounds. So the only being returned 40% of the time now, they're trying to lower it even further with this rule. It was something that was unanimously, unanimously panned by coaches. But the NFL basically you know, kind of twisted the arm of the competition committee and others to approve this rule. It's a trial rule, just like the... Um, when they opened up DPI defensive pass interference to review, and then it just, it just expired after a year. This also will expire after a year if they decide not to make it a permanent rule. Now the coaches don't like it and I'm open to objections to this, but I don't know. I haven't seen anything that I find convincing because there's one saints coach in particular, um, whose name is, let me get it right, Darren Rizzi, a longtime special teams coordinator, 
uh, Mike Triplett was, who was a reporter formerly ESPN, I think he's at neworleans.com, neworleansfootball.com, which is, is it New Orleans football? I want to make sure I'm saying the right thing here. It is neworleans.football. So that's an operation that was an independent operation that was started there. So he says that he's been an advisory, this, this, this special teams coordinator for the saints. He's been an advisor. He thinks number one, he said this. And a few other people have said that they think there could be unintended consequences where there are even more returns than they think because of this. Mm, I don't know. And he, he mentioned squib kicks. As a potential, because if you squib it, they can't fair catch it. They're forced to return it. Um, I don't know. There will there are always going to be unintended consequences, right? But the thing is, what we have here, which makes me confident that we're not going to see more returns or uglier returns or more squib kicks. We do have the fact that college is already has this rule change. And squib kicks actually went down. And even now where you're able to get a lot of hang time on the kickoff and you have the ability to potentially, if you have a really good kicker who can keep keep the ball up in the air and target inside the five-yard line, even now the average kick that's fielded right outside the goal line is taken back to something like the 23-yard line on average. Now, the median is a bit shorter. It's only you know around the 20, 21. So, like, a squib kick's not going to be better than that. You're not going to be able to have more precision than that. Every now and again, you know, a an up man in the blocking lineup is going to be able to, to grab it. You're going to get out well past the 25. You have less control directionally with a squib kick. It could just bounce out of bounds, which gives the ball to the team at the 40-yard line. And because it's lower and there's not as much hang time, you just don't have as much time to even get down and cover it. So like, I just figure squib kicks on average are going to be taken out to further than the 25. So it really like, why would you do that? And again, squib kicks did not go up in college when they introduced this rule. So when coaches are saying this, and I've seen multiple coaches use this as a talking point, special teams coordinators use as a talking point, the squib kick thing. I don't think, the evidence points in that direction. Actually, I know the evidence doesn't point in that direction. Is it possible the evidence is wrong and there's something different about college than about the pros? Possibly. But I think the evidence and the logic, which is like logically these squib kicks are just going to be bad. Like you'd rather have teams um, fair catch it is possible. The other thing that was mentioned by coaches, which I think is interesting, is because if it's a muffed kick, if you fair if you do a fair catch and you muff it, in other words, you drop it, you can't return it. So if let's say that the ball was going to land on the five, you, you, you signal for a fair catch, you, you muff it, it, it goes through your arms, it hits the ground, and then you pick it up. Well, you get the ball at the five-yard line. So the thought was because of that risk, because of the risk of, of having the ball at the five-yard line, that no one's going to exercise this option anyway. No one's going to fair catch it anyway, knowing that if you muff it, you're in, you're in bad shape. Um, I guess the evidence here that the NFL has provided the people for the rule change are provided, you know, less than 1% of kicks are, are muffed anyway. So it's a very rare occurrence. So that's their, their counter to that argument. And, you know, it, it makes, it makes sense to me. Um, so again, like I've seen people sharing these comments by this Darren Rizzi, where he says, 
squib kicks may happen. He says it, you know, I don't think there's evidence that says that it's going to help prevent concussions where, I mean, we, again, we've had a trial run on this in college and it's helped fewer returns. Now it is going to be fewer returns. If you're just not into returns, that's fine. Um, I mean, if you're into returns and you just want more of those, then yeah, it's going to be bad for that. Maybe it'll eventually play its way out of returns. The other thing that Rizzy mentions here is the, there are other changes like moving the kickoff back to the 20 yard line to create more space. That doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, I know that's what they're doing in the USFL with their new rule, but moving it back is to encourage more returns and the USFL does that, but the USFL forces teams to line up in a way where the blockers are closer to where it's being kicked off and have to run back simultaneously. So they don't slam into each other in the same sort of way. But the USFL is getting like 90% of the kicks are now being returned versus 40 something percent in the NFL. That's for more returns. That's probably, probably more concussions. I know the USFL has said that their injury rates have been pretty good. Uh, I don't have all the data behind that to say whether it's true or not, but that seems to me logically to be, like counterintuitive and probably not correct. Like making it a longer kickoff. I don't see how that's going to make anything safer by giving more room to the guys. I I don't see it. I don't see it. It's just going to have more returns. Again, 90 something percent of the kicks are being returned in the USFL just that by itself. So even if you lower the concussion rate, somehow you'd have to lower it by a factor of, you know, 50% just to keep the number of concussions the same because twice as many kicks are going to be taken out on this one, but it's a one-year rule and it's everything else. So I would say is before you just say, Oh, coaches are upset about this. And again, the talking points here, if you just think a little bit logically about this, the talking points don't quite seem to hold up. Um, I was going to ask friend of the show, Mike Lopez, who I'm sure was involved in this. Uh, of course he was involved. <laughs> I'm pretty sure in getting DPI to be reviewed. And then that kind of, kind of flopped out when the refs refused to call it um i'm sure that he he helped put together a lot of the data on this and i think just safety is going to be is going to conflict and i don't know if coaches are purposefully gonna are like cynically against this rule change because they just want more returns but it is a thing that special teams is you know special teams is under attack in the nfl if you think about it like going forward and forth down not having kickoffs Um, All these sorts of things take away from the special teams reps, which is becoming less and less of a thing. But I just think the kickoff maybe eventually will go the way of the the dodo bird here. Um, Because at a certain point, you're just looking for your excitement, your entertainment value that you're getting versus the cost of concussions. And I'm not sure it's there. I know a lot of guys prove themselves on special teams as their way to get into the NFL in other ways. But I don't know. We'll have to we'll have to figure out other ways for, for, for guys to get in and get on the roster there. All right, let's go to Q&A here. Again, anyone who wants to leave comments here on YouTube that is is listening along to me ramble on here about exciting things like kickoff rules, go ahead and drop one in there, and I'll get through these, and we'll all go about our weekends here. All right, this is from Man from BC. So I'll put this up here. It says, based on actual value created on the football field, QBs are often considered underpaid still. If you allocate salary caps solely based on value, how much of the cap would go to each position? That's a good question. Now, I think this is a issue with valuation in the context of separating it out, separating it out and valuing each player by a number metric and each position by a number metric versus 
how you're going to build a roster because you're right. I mean, if we're talking about, for instance, this plus minus metric that I have, the best non-quarterback types of seasons are going to be in the 30 to 40 range. Okay. So let's think about that in our heads. 30 to 40 range are the best seasons. And if a quarterback is injured, the best way I think to think about that is you're going to lose on the spread, depending on how good that quarterback is, how good the backup is, all this sort of stuff. It's going to be, I don't know, three to a max of maybe seven points if we're talking about a really big quarterback. I guess it could be more. I think when Aaron Rodgers went out back in 2017, it might have been even higher when he got injured for that season. Um, but even so, let's just say five points for a quarterback going out. Oh, let's, let's, let's make it lower. Say four points. So four points is like the predictive amount for a quarterback going out. So four points times, you know, say 16 games rather than 17 games because quarterbacks are going to miss some games. So then we got 40, we got six times four. So that's another 24. So we're talking about 64 points. So that's already way more than the biggest NFL seasons that I have for other positional players. And those other positional players, big seasons, that's not like a predicted amount moving forward. That's backwards looking, right? When, when lines are moving for quarterbacks getting injured and they, and they move by a lot, that's forwards looking. So even if you had a non-positional player who generated, let's say, 30-something points of value last year, which is about a win, a little bit like a win, let's say, a win and, and change, they're probably not going to do that again. Like if you're probably not going to have an outlier type of season two years in a row. So I think looking forward for most players, you could maybe assume at best like a point per game for a positional type of player. So like a 16, 17 points versus three to four points a game for a quarterback. Now, if you look at that metric and you say, okay, well, let's apply this to contracts. Well, that would say quarterbacks should be making you know, two and a half, two, three times what any other player in the league is. And obviously, you know, that's getting close to the case, but it's not the case. You still have players who are close to, let's say, 30 and then quarterbacks who are more now getting into, into the 50s. But it would say like at least twice as much. So if you apply that, you'd say quarterbacks are still undervalued. You say quarterbacks should be making somewhere around the like 75 to 80 million type of number. And then you should figure out over the rest of the team how to divide up the, you know, 140 million that you're going to have left over at that point. Um, I, I still think we probably should be closer to that than we are in the NFL as far as paying quarterbacks. But I get it that because of the market dynamics, you're not just going to be the one team to go out and do that, especially when you have quarterbacks, you can use the franchise tag. You can do these other things um, that, that the way they currently are. But yeah, no, I would say relative to, if you look at that pure points basis, Quarterbacks are still going to be undervalued. And as much as people want to say it, that that's not the case or think that these other positions are worth a lot, just look at the betting markets. Unless you have a cluster of non-quarterback injuries, barely moves ever going forward. And it'll move again when Aaron Rodgers is out and you have to bring in Brett Hundley. It moves like seven points, which is just an enormous number. Absolutely enormous number. We're talking about over 100 points of value over a course of a season, and just no non-positional, non-quarterback player is going to come, going to come close to that one. Um, the rest of the positions, as far as my my valuations have shown, edge rusher, wide receiver, are kind of in a tier along with um, 
interior pass rush or kind of are in a tier there. Second tier is really almost cornerback by themselves. Really great safety is coverage is, is, is okay there. Uh, oh, sorry. Our tackles is in that first tier also. I forgot to mention. And then we're talking about guards and linebackers, if they're really good coverage uh, linebackers. And then safeties are pretty low. And, of course, running backs are pretty low. And then we get into the, the special teamers. Um, this is from Lucas. Can you speak to Joe Mixon's non-release considering his contract and age? Yeah, this is an interesting one. I think for Mixon, I thought there was a better chance that he would get released. But let's remember – he did sign this extension that goes through 2024. So the release here, let's pull it up. Would be 10 million in cap savings, which is interesting. Um, he's a 12 million cap number, 9.4 million base salary. Yeah, that one's a weird one to me as to why they don't release him. But they obviously had not really planned for this because if you look at the depth chart for the Bengals and at at running back here, Chase Brown, number two, according to ESPN, Travion Williams, and then Chris Evans, who's been there for a while. Yeah, they, they, they got nothing there. So they're kind of just planning on rolling forward, I think, here with Mixon. Maybe this would probably be his last season, although, yeah, no, there's really no, no guarantees here. So... I'm, I'm kind of shocked, honestly. They just have to eat the cap. I mean, eat the um, the signing bonus here. So, yeah, I, I don't know what's going on with the Bengals, but they're they're not planning at all for letting Mixon go. They must really care about him here because, you know, uh, P. Ryan left also, and they really did nothing to fill it. So, I don't know. It's, it's a head-scratcher for me, honestly. Uh, okay, last question we got in the queue here. We might get out of here super early today. This would be good. Uh, Q&A. Given the NFC's talent gap relative to the AFC, do you expect to see a disproportionate amount of teams tanking in 23? Uh, no, I don't seem to see that. I don't think we'll see that. If you look at the teams, I think, who are in a situation where they can realistically tank. Um, well, actually, I, I, I don't want to say it too quickly, the no. Because disproportionate everything is still relative though so i i do think there might be more teams who are willing mid-season because we've seen more li liquidity let's say in trade markets right so if we get more liquidity midway through the season i think there might be more teams who are willing just to trade away pieces in the middle of the season if things aren't going well number one you get better valuations i think than anything else and then just be willing to bottom out in a way in order to get up near the top of the draft to get that quarterback teams that I would think of who are in this situation that maybe the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, although Todd Bowles probably gets fired under that, on that situation, but they'd be a team where they have players like, uh, let's say Mike Evans, um, that they could look to trade to a contender and probably get the most that they could get for, for him uh, mid season. If a team can free up some cap room for, for him. So that would be a possibility. I think the Buccaneers 
Um, the Cardinals, they have a pretty good runway as far as having a first-year head coach and first-year GM where they could bottom out a little bit more easily. Maybe they just don't bring Kyler back at all. That would be a way to achieve bottoming out. Uh, but other than that, I don't know if there's a lot of teams that you can point to that would be able to credibly do that. And the head coach and GM not have to worry about losing their jobs in the process of doing that. I mean, a sneaky one, and I don't think, I don't think this is really going to happen, but just looking at a sneaky one is the Rams, I guess. Although, I don't know. I mean, Stafford's coming back. This is probably Aaron Donald's last season. They haven't had picks in so long. Could they start trading off some guys? I mean, they've already been releasing, obviously, in the offseason. Could they look to potentially trade some, someone midseason? Maybe. The sneaky one is the Rams. Another sneaky one, because I think LaFleur could, could uh, withstand this, is the Packers. Like, if the Packers start going down, I don't know. You got Bakhtiari's getting a little bit up there. In age, could they look to trade away, trade him away, eat a bunch of cap in doing so, bottom out? And if Jordan Love just isn't the guy, he could be a good, like, tanking type of quarterback. Um, but I don't really see anyone else. I don't know if there's any other ideas out there for anyone, for other teams that could really credibly do this with their current situation. I mean, the the commanders would be a choice, but the thing is they still got Rivera there. And I think he holds a lot of sway in the front office too. So like he'd have to get fired mid season and then maybe they could think about selling off some pieces and things like that. But the only, the only reason I think it might be a little bit more prevalent this year is because of teams' willingness to make mid season trades. If that's going to go up proportionally to their willingness that we've seen in the off season to make trades, then that'll work. Then that will also help teams uh, be able to, to, to bottom out in those situations. All right, that's the Q&A here. Again, drop me any comments on Substack if you want me to address some questions for next week. Otherwise, uh, have a good weekend, everyone here. And next week, I'll be coming at you talking to Seth Partnow, who's at StatsBomb now, formerly of the uh, Minnesota Timberwolves uh, analytics department there. We're gonna, but he's working StatsBomb, which is going to be doing stuff on the American football side, plus eventually I think they're, they're going to get into the NBA. So we'll be talking football and basketball. And then two weeks from now, I'm going to have Ben Taylor on the pod who works um, thinking basketball is his thing. Incredible work. I, I was following Ben before he blew up and now his YouTube channel gets like hundreds of thousands of views. Now he's doing videos for the, the NBA. I was someone who followed him way back when he just had his, um, back picks i want to say is the site and his goat 40 list which i loved um and we'll so we'll be talking a lot of basketball maybe it's how it relates to football too but he'll be another guy that i'm gonna to talk to in a couple of weeks and some other good interviews i'm gonna get lined up again some of them may not be football related but always tangentially or always related to some analytical stuff that we can talk about um you know review review the pod on itunes if you get a chance uh you know five stars only please And uh, otherwise, I'll be talking to everyone next week. Thanks so much for the time.